Well, good morning again, everybody. So you're probably wondering, am I just promoting CVS's uh, show called The Briefcase? Yes, I am. No, I get paid for that. No, I don't. I'm kidding. Um, the reason I want us to see that this morning, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Ephesians chapter 4. Um, this morning, we're going to continue on in a series that we started a few weeks ago called A New Way of Living. And this morning, we're going to talk about the concept of love, a new way of understanding love. And I wanted you just to kind of, if you haven't seen the, the show that CVS has out, has, it's been, I think, on about four, four weeks or so. Um, the concept is that two families are given $100,000 in a briefcase, and then they have to make a decision. It's, it's a life-altering amount of money, a life-changing amount of money. And then they have to make a decision, should they keep all the money, should they give some of it away, or keep all of it for themselves? What they don't realize is that these two couples don't realize that, that each one of them has a briefcase, and they're deciding whether or not to share it with each other. And so the concept is amazing, and just to kind of see that what unfolds. But, but what captures me about it is it forces individuals to challenge themselves in terms of the balance between generosity and selfishness. And the dialogue that goes on in our show is very, it's really interesting. But, but on a larger scale, what, what that concept forces us to do on a much larger scale is to think in terms of, not in terms of monetary uh, sum of money that you might get, but to think about this. What if you were given a life-altering amount of love, what would you do with it? The capacity to be self-sacrificing, to give yourself away to other people, to live for other people. You are given a life-altering amount that you could use either to bask on yourself and to, to enjoy the love that comes from God or to give just a little bit of away because you want to be a generous person or just to give all of it away. See, we have a, a much larger sum of love than we will ever have of money in our life. And for us to live a new way, for us to truly live the way that Jesus purposed for us to live, it is true that we have, through Jesus' death on the cross and his invitation to be welcomed into his family, we have been given not only a life-altering amount of love, we have been given an unlimited amount of love. And we, the church, not just Antioch Church, the church of all places and people in the world should understand the concept of love better than anybody else because we've experienced the depth of love that God has poured out on us so that we should be able to demonstrate that to each other and to the world. And so this morning, we're going to look at verses uh, 29 in, chapter, in Ephesians 4 and go to actually verse 2 uh, in chapter 5. And I wanted to take some time to walk through. There's a number of things that Paul talks about. And what he's describing, he says later on in the passage about what does it look like when we actually walk a path or a life of love. So if you have your Bibles, let me start verse 29. Paul says this. He says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ, uh, God, forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So in those verses, there's actually eight things I just want to walk through that Paul outlines and says, listen, this is what love looks like in your life. When the, the unlimited amount of love that you have received now works its way out of your life to impact people around you, this is what it starts to look like. This is the new way of living. The first thing, look at verse 29. And this may seem pretty basic and simple, but love looks like the absence of bad language. 
So that means, does it mean, yeah, I mean, I can never, ever cuss again? I mean, for some people, that's like no big deal. For others, it's like, wow, that's like my second language, you know? That's what I've grown up on. What Paul's referring to when he says, he says in verse 29, he says, he says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. The word unwholesome, what we would say, it doesn't just refer to what we would consider words that are weak, cuss words or swear words. But what it literally means, unwholesome, actually has to do with what you would describe as spoiled food unwholesome, something that's unhealthy, that's not good for you in terms of the language that we use. And and many times it's the language that tears down. It's the language that spoils things in life. It's the language, it isn't just limited to certain four-letter words that we shouldn't allow to be a part of our vocabulary because that would miss the point. It's the way that we speak to other people in a way that are, are we bringing something wholesome to their lives? And we'll talk about something encouraging or is what we're doing really spoiling the goodness in their life because of the words that we're choosing to use towards somebody else? See, the challenge that we face is it's, it's really hard to modify our language because our language, its source doesn't come from here. It comes from here. And that means when you get put in a situation where pressure is applied and stress is upon you, what is on the inside, how many know, finds its way out. And so it's not like, oh, just stop saying these words. I'll stop being mean to that person. I'll stop saying things that would be considered unwholesome. The problem is we can't just say, I'm going to stop saying this. We have to go down to the core of who we are and ask why. Why does that, that word or those words or those phrases or the way that I speak to people, why does that come out when pressure is applied? Jesus talks about this in Matthew 12, verses 33 to 35. He says, Make a good tree, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For the tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, he's talking to the religious leaders, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. Where does that language come from? It comes in, from inside of our hearts. It's, it's the outflow of what's already present. It's the bad fruit that's already in us. And that's why to find a new way to live life in love means that we can't just say, okay, I'm just going to kind of modify the outside. We have to go down to the core and ask Jesus, what hasn't been transformed in my heart yet? What hasn't been changed in my soul about my response to other people? Why does that come out? Because that's the source. That's the core And then when you begin to to realize what God may be doing in you, then what happens is the byproduct is the bad language goes away. And that's why sometimes it's kind of interesting when when we make language kind of like, well, oh, don't say that. And so we, 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 we react so strongly to people when they say a bad language and somehow feel better when they don't, not realizing they've just found a way to cover up what's on the inside. The issue is the inside. The issue is the spoiled, rotten food inside that comes out when we won't, don't want it to. So the first thing is it's the absence of that. This next thing, look at going on in verse 29. Love looks like the presence of encouraging language. So Paul goes on, he says, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So it's having this capacity to think with the love that God gives us in a moment to think beyond ourselves to say what is helpful. What is encouraging? What is best? What is this person? What is my spouse? What is my child? What is my friend? What is my coworker? What do they need to hear right now that is going to be helpful for them? That's going to actually encourage them to move the right direction or go the right way in life. And many times that means that we have to keep our mouth shut initially to actually think, what is that? What is that language that I can give to them that's going to be helpful to them? 
See, because words are, are weapons, and, and they can be used for good and for evil. They can be used to spoil the goodness in somebody's life, but they can also be used to encourage what God is doing in someone's life. It's like a water balloon. So, so think about a water balloon. So when, if you've ever played the game, you know, water balloon toss, where, you know, you start, you know, like maybe three or four feet away from your partner, and you throw it, and you're really careful. Anybody done that before? And then you take a big step back, and the line grows and grows and grows, and you get 20 or 30 feet apart, and everybody throws their balloon. So, so when that balloon is coming, and you're receiving it, and as you're throwing it, you're thinking, how can I throw this balloon in a way that it, it goes gently into the air, and so when somebody catches it, it's easy for them to catch? When you're playing that game, nobody winds up and throws a fastball at their partner, right? Because they want the balloon to stay intact, and they want to protect it. So they think about how they're throwing it and how it's going to be delivered to the other person. Now, there's a different thing than a water balloon toss. It's called a water balloon fight. The objective is completely different. The water balloon toss objective is to not get wet. The objective of a water balloon fight is to get somebody else wet, And if you and I think about in terms of the way we use our words, that if my intent is to get them wet, that means that I have ill intent towards them, then I'm going to throw it as hard as I can at them so that they don't just catch it, but that they get pulverized by it. But if I think through, I want to make sure that they can receive this and they can understand it and they can hear it, then I'm going to think about, just like when you're tossing a water balloon to your partner, how can they best receive this so it doesn't explode in their face? And if you and I think that way, words are just like a water balloon. They can be beneficial and they can be received in a gentle way that actually is helpful or they can actually cause harm and be hit. Anybody ever got hit with a water balloon and it hurt really bad? There was a few years ago, we had a church picnic up in Oregon and for some reason, all the kids in the youth group thought it would be fun to nail Pastor John with a water balloon. And so I'm not kidding you. They all like came from all over the place and like literally in about a three second span, I got hit with 50 water balloons at high velocity. I wasn't very pastoral at that moment, just let me tell you. On the outside, I tried really hard, but on the inside, I'm like, I'm going to kill them. Of course, I couldn't see who it was because I was so covered in water and and upset. But I want you to think about the next time something's coming out of your mouth, how is this going to be received by this person? Is it going to be helpful to them? Because the way that God wants us to live is to think about what's encouraging and helpful to other people as opposed to what could be something that would spoil them. And then there's a third thing going on that Paul writes about. It's in verse 30, if you move to verse 30. And that is that love looks like the presence of value in valuing other people. So Paul says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So Paul's referring to something really important. He's talking about not having bad language, but having good language as in terms of thinking of other people. And as we get further in the passage, he says, Living a life of love. And he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit because if someone has made a commitment to follow Jesus, that Holy Spirit has come in them and now they're sealed to the day of redemption, which means God has brought eternal value to their soul. So you and I should have that kind of value for them as well. That God would love that human being that may be your enemy, that maybe did use bad language, that maybe hurt you and made you upset. God loved that person enough to not only give his life, Jesus to give his life and die on the cross for them, but then to send his spirit to actually live inside them as a guarantee so that they will have eternal value and be with God someday. That's, that's the person that, that we're, we're confronted with that God places the highest value on them and says you should do the same. Otherwise you will grieve the Holy Spirit because you will not place the same value on that person 
as God has placed on them. Just think about that, that the God of the universe, for those who said yes to Jesus, decides to come and dwell and live inside of us. God living in us. That's crazy. That means the person next to you, whether you like them or not, if they've said yes to Jesus, has God living in them. Now, he doesn't always come out. Sometimes we cover him up. But that means that God of the universe loves that person so much that he's decided to dwell in them. And that means that our approach to people has to understand that whether we think they do or not, they have eternal value. And even people who have yet to know who Jesus is, they have the capacity to say yes to Jesus, therefore receive the Holy Spirit, deposit him. They have the potential for eternal value. That means all human beings have value. But see, we, we assess value differently. We don't assess value the same way God does. God values all humanity. God values people. And we should as well. That's why he chooses to allow his son to die on the cross and his Holy Spirit to be deposited in our lives. See, but when we, when, we, when we see something for face value, we have a way of assessing value that usually we have a pecking order of who's most valuable in our life or who's most valuable in the world. When God doesn't have that, everybody's valuable. It's like you've heard the, the story a number of years ago. A guy was at a flea market and he bought a $4 frame because he wanted to restore the frame. And it was junk. I mean, really it was. He got it for four bucks. And then he put lots of time in to try to restore this frame. And, and everything that he did to it, he couldn't make it look like he wanted it to look. And so he was about ready to throw it away. And then he took the painting that was in the $4 frame and he removed it. And some of you heard the story. It's amazing. Behind that painting, he found one of the 24 original copies of the Declaration of Independence that was actually sent out to share and spread the word about the Declaration of There were 24 original copies. That was one of them. That $4 frame went from $4 to at auction. That, that Declaration of Independence sold for $2.42 million. $4 about to go in the trash or, or $2.4 million. That's crazy. That is crazy. Somebody ran the math and estimated that's about like a $60 million percentage increase in value. Now, in one moment, it was trash to him, and in the next moment, it was valuable. See, if you and I see things the way God sees, if you and I peel back the layer of somebody's life and look deep into their soul and realize the value that God places on that human being, and especially for those those people that maybe we struggle with, maybe that we're hurt by, maybe that we don't like, maybe that are different than us, and because of that, we don't treat them the same. Love never allows us to discriminate in terms of how much love we give to other people. God doesn't do that. God doesn't play favorites. So, oh, he does. He has his people. He has the Jewish nation, but the Jews rejected the gospel, and we benefited from it because God values all people. God didn't didn't set this whole thing up to have one group of people that he would never reach to anybody else. He actually embraced the Jews as a vehicle to reach the nations because God loves people. And we should as well express that kind of value to the people around us. And then there's a fourth thing that looks like love when we walk out this, this walk of love, and that is the absence of resentment. Anybody want to admit you've ever resented somebody else in your life? Raise your hand. We all have. This is what Paul says. He gives a long list here. He says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Really easy, right? Just get rid of it. Don't do it. Paul picks all those words because they they each have a nuance of really what this overriding kind of bitterness and resentment that kind of takes root in us, which is the opposite of love. 
And he said, those things shouldn't be a part of your love or a part of your life because they're not just expressing love to other people. So looking at those words, let me just ask some questions in relation to those words. And maybe you just kind of do your own self-assessment right now of your life in terms of is there resentment and bitterness in your life towards other people? So when Paul says to, to get rid of rage, he uses the word rage. That really has to do with this kind of question. Do I let the passion of the moment control me? In other words, when something happens that I don't like, do I let the emotion in that moment take me to another level that I should not be at? Think about that in your life. Second word that he uses is the word anger, which really begs the question, do I often feel hate or anger underneath the surface towards other people? Some of us have become really good at kind of curbing and controlling our language and our reactions, but deep down inside, we're burning towards other people. We're angry at other people because, again, somehow we haven't chosen to value them the way God values them. And then he uses the word brawling, which begs the question, do I find myself yelling at others out of anger? That's what brawling has to do. I take it to another level. That simmering anger comes out, and I just launch on people. Now, no one in this room has ever done that, right? And if your spouse has done it, don't look at them and smile, okay? And then he uses the word slander. And that's the question, do I go on the offensive to destroy others behind their back? It's, this is a progressive thing that Paul's talking about when he goes from rage, anger, brawling, slander. And then he says malice, and that's the question, do I desire to hurt others with my words? That's the motivation. That's what's going on underneath the surface. See, there's an antidote to those things. It's not modification, it's transformation. And the only way that transformation happens is what comes in the next part of the passage where Paul talks about this thing called forgiveness. It's the thing that God extends to us through Jesus. It's the thing that we're supposed to extend to other people. And when you and I have the capacity to do that, then what begins to disappear from our life is that list. Rage, anger, brawling, slander, and malice go away. Because now we've released those things and no longer hold that resentment and bitterness towards other people. And now we find a new way, a new rhythm of living, a new way of loving people because we've been transformed by God's Spirit who lives in us. And then there's a fifth thing going on that love also looks like. Love looks like the presence of compassion. So verse 32, Paul goes on, he says, Be kind and compassionate to one another. So the word compassionate literally means deep feelings or a tenderheartedness towards somebody else. It's feeling something genuine towards somebody else. It's feeling a sense of connection with what somebody else is experiencing or whatever they're going through or whatever they may be suffering through. That you have a a feeling towards them. It's the kind of thing that Jesus felt over and over and over towards other people around him. Many times you read through the Gospels and Jesus will come onto the scene of a crowd of people and he says he's moved with compassion. That means he connects with their pain or their suffering or what they're going through and that becomes a part of his emotion. And if you and I think about that in our own lives, think, thinking about what is it like to actually walk in somebody else's shoes? What would it be like to be somebody other than ourselves? Somebody who is going through a difficult time. It's really easy for us to look at somebody else's life from our perspective. But how is it to look at life from their perspective? To actually think about what would it be like to be them? What would it be like to be in the, in the household that they live in? What would it be like to have their job? What would it be like to be raised in the family that they were raised in? What would it be like to struggle with the disease that they have? What would it be like to, to be the person that they are? And just to think about what that looks like. 
Something happens when you and I can have that kind of connection that allows the love that God has placed inside of us, that unlimited love, to come out. When we see that, when we see that brokenness in other people. I know for me, I'm not a, an overly emotional guy, but, but sometimes I, I can definitely be moved to tears. But, but my kids will tell you, that doesn't happen very often. But usually it happens not on behalf of me, but it happens when I see something else happening to someone that I love. And I remember probably the, the time, one of the times that I probably cried the hardest in my life was after my grandfather had passed away. We were at his house, and I was sitting across the table from my dad. And my dad, we were going through all the paperwork you have to go through when you lose, lose a loved one, and he's processing through things. And, and I could see just the weight of all the decisions you have to make and all the things that he's going through. And I looked at him, and I saw him start to break. And my dad doesn't cry a lot either. And then he just lost it. And he was just sobbing. I mean, just tears coming down his face. And I looked at him, and now because he was crying, I couldn't control my, cry, my tears. And so I lost it. And so my dad and I are sitting in, in the kitchen of my grandparents' house, just sobbing uncontrollably. And I'm sobbing. Yeah, I lost my grandfather, but I didn't just lose my dad. My dad had just lost his dad. And I felt what he was experiencing because I thought what it would be like if I wasn't sitting across the table from my dad. What if he was gone? And the pain that I would feel. And so I don't know how long it lasted, but we were just, I mean, like puddles on the floor crying. And finally it was kind of therapeutic. It all got out. And then we got back to the paperwork and all that was going on there. But what triggered that in me was not the pain that I was necessarily feeling for myself. It was the pain that I saw in my dad. And that's what compassion does. That's what the love of God does. That's why when Jesus came to earth and had people reject him, and that's how Jesus could be literally hanging on the cross, suffering for the sins of all humanity. And he looked down to those who, who, were, who had tortured him and put him on the cross, and he says, what, God, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. How do you have that capacity? Only God can give us that capacity. It's when we're moved with compassion, when we see the brokenness in other people, that that comes out of us because much like the, the poison or the spoiled food that comes out when what's, good in, in, what's inside us is not good, what is good inside us by the transforming work of God's Spirit comes out through compassion for other people. And most of us understand the world that we live in is a world that's dying for compassion. We, people need compassion. In fact, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. So go on in verse 32, because the next thing that love looks like is it looks like the presence of forgiveness. So Paul says, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. That last part is really difficult. Because he says, yeah, he says, forgiving each other. And you're, oh yeah, sure, that's easy. And then he pulls out the trump card, just as Christ forgave you. Just as you have experienced just as your mound of sin and brokenness and failure was taken upon Jesus on the cross and paid for, you in turn should approach other people the same way. The load of sin that God has forgiven you gives you the ability and the requirement to forgive the one or two sins that somebody else has committed against you. Forgiveness can change our lives. Forgiveness can change the lives of other people. Now, I'm going to play a short video for you in a moment. It's, it's pretty intense, but last week we prayed for it. Many of you have been following it in the news, what happened in Charleston, South Carolina, in the AME church there, and the lives that were lost because a young man decided to take a gun into a Bible study and kill nine people because of hate in his heart. Now, there's been all kinds of reactions, but the most powerful reaction 
And the most life-changing reaction is a group of people who are part of that church who are followers of Jesus. And when they showed up, which is, which is very un... It's just not a normal thing. Family members don't show up, show up at the arraignment of, a, of, of someone who's been arrested. Normally they show up at the trial and then at the sentencing. But members who had lost their family members showed up to this man's arraignment not to throw stones at him, but to do something totally unexpected. And it's captured on video. If you haven't seen it, I want you to watch this. I forgive you. You took something very precious away from me. I would never talk to her ever again. I would never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you. You know, I forgive you and my family forgive you. But we would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Repent. Confess. Give your life to the one who matters the most, Christ. We welcome you Wednesday night in our Bible study with open arms. You have killed some of the most beautifulest people that I know. Every fiber in my body hurts, but as we say in a Bible study, we enjoyed you, but may God have mercy on you. The only way someone has that capacity is because what God does in them. I've never had to walk through that. Maybe some of you in this room have had to walk through that to be able to extend forgiveness to probably one of the most horrific things that someone can do to anyone else in losing a loved one. But what is going to change our culture, our society, what is going to change that 20-year-old who went in and did that is the forgiveness of other people. That's the only thing that makes room for change in anybody's life. Condemnation, judgment, that doesn't. There's no hope for that. But forgiveness at a relational level changes everything. That's what God calls us to do. I applaud the AME Church. I applaud those members because they have made Jesus look good in our culture. They have made the church look as the church is supposed to be, a community of people who follow Jesus and live out love and compassion for those around them. It's good to see good news in the, in the media about the church, isn't it? Because we usually see the negative side all the time. But that's what, that's what a follower of Jesus should be able to do, is to extend forgiveness to those who have done something so horrific like that. Two more things. Look at going on to chapter 5 now, verse 1. Paul goes on. He says that love looks like the presence of Jesus. So he says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Follow God's example. God's example, what? Sent his son, gave his son. Jesus willingly came as God to be human, to die for our sin, and sacrifice everything. What does it mean to follow God's example? What does it mean for the presence of Jesus to be in our life? This is the key for us. This is the key for our church. This is the key for our country. Is what people need is they need the church to be Jesus. They need, they need followers of Jesus to be like Jesus. And, and that's the hard part. We have lots of definitions about what is it like to be like Jesus. You know, you could get a wristband or a bumper sticker that says WWJD, right? But everybody has their, their kind of idea of what would Jesus do. We kind of really, 
kind of put the label, what would Jesus do, but we really do what we want to do. What would Jesus do? Jesus would do what he did in the Gospels. And if you read through the Gospels over and over again, you're going to start to get a feel of how Jesus lived his life and how he's called us to live his life, which sometimes, sadly, looks different than the life we live and call it Christian. And that's, that's what you and I have to understand. If we're supposed to, in this context of being dearly loved children, we're supposed to demonstrate love to the world. That means we're supposed to follow God's example, which is shown in Jesus. We're supposed to be like Jesus. And we're like, oh yeah, I'm just going to go be like Jesus. But sometimes being like Jesus is hard. Because Jesus did stuff that we would struggle with. Let me, let me give this in a different context. Obviously this last week, you're probably aware, unless you're your head was buried in the sand, that the Supreme Court uh, passed a ruling five to four that no state in the United States can ban same-sex marriage. Now, I want to talk about this just for a moment because this, this is a subject that what we tend to do in the church is we tend to polarize and go to the two extremes, which if you read the Gospels, Jesus never did. And we go to the one extreme when we react to this, knowing, okay, when we read the scriptures, we realize that God, and it's very clear, that marriage is between a man and a woman. That's what, God is the author of marriage, and it doesn't matter what a government says or not. But, so we go to that one side, and because we believe that, we think it's time to rally the troops, it's time to go protest, it's time to legislate, it's time to let our voice and our freedom be heard. You never see Jesus doing that in the Gospels. Never. And what we're doing is we bring upon judgment. We start pointing the finger at people because we disagree with their lifestyle, and we want that to change. So we think if we legislate it, we'll change it. Guess what? Legislation doesn't change morality. It never has. The law couldn't do it. The law was powerless to do it. Ask the Jews. They had the most strict moral law there was, and they destroyed it. Or we go to the other extreme, and we define love by full acceptance and endorsement of anything that makes somebody feel like they are who they are. So we either react strongly against it and pass judgment and condemnation, or we completely endorse and don't have any kind of understanding of what God calls us to be in our life. Both of those, I believe, are wrong. Because if you read the Gospels, Jesus never, ever did that. Jesus was never found picketing the religious leaders or the Roman government. He wasn't. He was never passing around um, trying to get signatures so they could get something on the ballot. Jesus never did that. But he also confronted sinners in their own sin, but he did it with compassion and love. Jesus had this amazing capacity. That's why it's so important to go back to Jesus. Jesus didn't hang out with church people. Jesus didn't hang out with religious leaders. Who did he hang out with? He hung out with sinners. Did that mean that Jesus was endorsing their sin? No, but he had the capacity to actually let sinners feel comfortable enough in his presence that he knew he loved them, that they actually would want to hang out with him, but at the same time, they knew that he was different than anybody else, but they didn't run from him. See, we tend to go the one extreme. We, are, we cozy up to people and lifestyle, or we are so repelled by it that we cause them to flee. Jesus didn't do either of those. He had this ability to embrace people and love them, which gave the opportunity for them to see life differently. Here's a perfect example. John chapter 8. You don't have to turn there. When Jesus is confronted with this woman caught in adultery, very famous story. We always go to this story. But the way Jesus reacted shows the way that we should handle this, what's going on in our country, which, by the way, the Supreme Court decision this week didn't threaten who God is. He's not too worried 
Because, oh man, our society's going downhill. You know what? You want to see a bad society? Go back 2,000 years ago and live when Jesus lived. The Roman Empire, they had all kind of stuff going on. So it's like, oh, it's always getting worse. No, it's always worse. It's always bad. But the church doesn't stop. God's mission doesn't get compromised. And God's kingdom doesn't stop advancing. So we don't need to be in panic, okay? So don't panic. There's no reason for that. But how did Jesus respond? So this woman is brought before him, and she is guilty. There is no way around it. She has sinned. She's violated the law. And by every requirement, her penalty is death. So you're thinking, how in the world does Jesus get out of this? So what does he do? He looks around at those who have brought her, and they're ready to stone her, which is what the law required. And he says to them, Whoever of you has not sinned before, you get to throw the first stone. And if you know the story, one by one, they started to leave. Who did Jesus go after? He didn't point the finger and said, hey, you're guilty. You were caught in adultery. You are a sinner. You are condemned to hell. He didn't say that. He addresses the religious people who want to kill her. And he says, yeah, any one of you who's perfect, you can be the judge. But all of them walk away. And then he says this. This is what's so contrary to sometimes the way that we react. He looks at a sinful, broken woman, and he says to her, neither do I condemn you. And then he says something so powerful. He says, now, because you're not going to die, and you're not condemned, and you're not going to receive the penalty of what you deserve, now go leave your life of sin. He took her from death and set her free to life. And what is so powerful about that is that what gave her freedom was not judgment. Hebrews says that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. When we react against somebody's moral decision in their life, we are not leaving. If we pass judgment on them and we condemn them, we are leaving no room for them to ever come to a point of repentance. That's why when Jesus hung out with sinners, he was, he was passing judgment on who? The religious leaders, not the sinners. He was showing them compassion and love, which gave the door open for those people to understand through the love of God that somehow they could see life differently. And let me add one more thing before I move on to our last point. This issue becomes so polarizing, but I know for some in this church, in fact, we've had people within our church who have left our church, who have struggled with same-sex attraction because, and I don't know who it is, but because they felt when they walked into church, they felt like a second-class citizen. But at the same time, they're trying to follow Jesus and navigate this confusing identity they're walking through. But for some of you in this room, maybe you struggle with this. Maybe you have a family member that is maybe living in a lifestyle that maybe you struggled with. And when you are at that personal level, everything changes. This isn't about the Supreme Court. This isn't about legislation. This is about somebody that you love and you care for. And you're wanting to find a way, how do I help them navigate this? If you and I understand that, that means the only change that will happen in people's lives is when there is an active relationship of love and compassion that leaves the door open for God's transforming work. Let me encourage you, if there's somebody in in your family who is in a same-sex relationship or struggling with same-sex attraction, do not cut them off from relationship. Jesus didn't do that to sinners, did he? God will be the judge. Don't worry about that. He's got that one covered. You don't have to be. And just because you're present doesn't mean that you endorse their lifestyle, but you can still love them. 
And you can still be their friend and they can still be your son or your daughter. They are not a second-class citizen. And if the world sees that, that's what's going to change. The government's not going to change anything. But the church can change if we live like Jesus lived. That's how Jesus changed his culture. culture. He didn't go through the government. He went through individual lives. He started with 12, and now there are billions of people around the planet who follow Jesus. He has the power to do that through the love and compassion that he wants us to live out in our lives. John 1, uh, 14 says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus wants us to make our dwelling amongst the people of our city, of our country, of our world, so that he can bring his love, redemption, compassion through us. And then the final thing. Love looks like, in verse 2, the presence of sacrifice. So Paul goes on, he says, And walk in a way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So what Paul says, he says, listen, if you're going to truly learn to love, then you're going to have to learn to sacrifice. Love always comes with a cost. Love requires that we have to give up something. Obviously for Jesus, he gave up his life for you and I. But I want you to just think about this for a moment. Go back to where we started. Go back to that briefcase, not full of $101,000. A briefcase, a soul, a heart filled with God's love that is unlimited. But in order for you to give that love away, that means you have to be willing to let it go. Now, God's love is always replenished in your life, but that means you have to be willing to give yourself away, giving away what's valuable to you. When, if you've watched the show, The Briefcase, the very interesting thing is that, that what happens is that money always gets attached to things. If we give this much money away, that means we can't do this. The dialogue really has nothing to do with the money. The dialogue has to do with what are we going to sacrifice? What are we going to give up for ourselves for the benefit of somebody else? What Paul's saying is Jesus gave up for himself his privilege as God. That's what he ta- Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2. He was fully God in human flesh, but he never used his identity as God for his own benefit. But he chose to be, what, a servant and to suffer for you and I. He gave up. This is what's crazy, and this is what's hard to understand, that, that Jesus took on a human body that is still with him in the resurrected state for eternity. Jesus didn't just say, okay, now hocus pocus, I leave the planet, I no longer have a body. No, he has a resurrected body that all of us will have someday. And now it's a part of who he is. He didn't have that before. So he gets to drag around the baggage of humanity for eternity. Why? Because he loved people. He loved us, and he knew that was the only way that we would have hope for salvation, was through that. So in our lives, our lives, think about, God has deposited in each one of us, if you said yes to him, an unlimited resource, a life-altering, a life-changing amount of love, and now he says to you, give it away. Give it away. It will change you, and it will change the world around you. I long for the day when I turn my TV on, and what I hear about Christianity and hear about the church is what we heard out of Charleston, South Carolina. That's what I want to hear. I don't want to turn my TV on like I did this morning and watch somebody with a big old bullhorn out in front of a court somewhere yelling at someone who's in a homosexual lifestyle that they're going to hell because of their lifestyle. And by the way, Jesus loves you. I don't want to see that anymore. We need to demonstrate it in our actions. I know I'm a little, on a little soapbox right now and I'll step off of it. But we should be defined by 
the love that God gave to us, the love that Jesus gave to the woman caught in adultery, that his love and compassion set her free to leave her life of sin. She was free to do that because no longer was she condemned. She was free. So let's go ahead and close our eyes as, as we conclude. With, just with your eyes closed, I want you to listen to 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. John says this, he says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. If you've said yes to Jesus, you are a child of God. God has lavished his love on you. He has deposited his spirit in you to help you to be transformed from the inside out and a guarantee that in the future, in eternity, after this life is over, you are guaranteed to be with him because his spirit is deposited in you. He has placed the greatest value on you regardless of your background, your failure, regardless of what others have said about you, but because what Jesus has done for you, you are valuable to him. But now where you're at right now, just with your, your minds focused, in a moment I'll, I'll pray and we'll conclude. Who is the person or the people that God is saying to you right now, you need to find a new way of living in regards to them? You need to understand what love looks like in terms of your relationship with them. Because I know even as I speak this, most everyone in this room, you already have one or two or three or four people that you know, I need to show the love of God to that person. I need to be self-sacrificing for that person. I need to think about what I'm going to say to them before I say it to ask the question, is this going to spoil them or is this going to help them? And as God has brought those people to your mind, then I want to encourage you this week and moment when I pray and you're going to go on to the rest of your day and the rest of your week that you would, as you encounter those people, that you would allow God's spirit to come over you in a way that now you live differently. Now you talk differently. Now you have compassion towards somebody in a different way because God is moving inside of you. Lord Jesus, we know what Paul has described for us in these verses is supernatural. It's not normal. It's not easy. And it's not something we can accomplish on our own. And that's why, Lord, we ask that we would experience the power of your Holy Spirit who transforms our soul in such a profound way that we can have compassion for other people that we can learn to love other people who maybe we disagree with, and that we can learn to actually give of ourselves this unlimited resource of love that we have away to others. And in the result, Lord, to see lives change around us, to see our life change because of what you're doing through us. So Lord, open our eyes, give us the courage, and help us to truly live a new way of love. We thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen.